This is American History TV's Lectures in History podcast. This week, a class about President Ronald Reagan and the end of the Cold War, taught by University of Texas at Austin professor Jeremy Surrey. Some listeners may find language in this program offensive. Okay, uh, let's go to our first slide, if we could. Here we have Ronald Reagan. We talked in our last lecture about the disruptions of the 1960s, the changes in the 1970s, the social changes in the 1970s towards suburbanization following the disruptions of the 1960s. We talked about Nixon and Carter and the desire so many Americans had for quiet, for silence, to escape, to escape the disruptions, to escape the conflict. Ronald Reagan, coming into office in the early 1980s, elected in November 1980, represented just what I think Time Magazine is saying here. A fresh start for so many people. A sunny, positive disposition. Ronald Reagan's hero was Franklin Roosevelt. Ronald Reagan was of a different party. But his hero was Franklin Roosevelt because he grew up listening to Roosevelt on the radio. I'll talk about that more in a couple minutes. And saw in, Re in Roosevelt a figure who helped restore hope to Americans. A figure who helped restore the sense, the belief, the faith in better days ahead. Someone who restored a sense of can-do spirit in Americans. And that's what Reagan was all about. He came of age, not just in the shadow of the Great Depression and the Cold War, but in the shadow of the Vietnam War the disruptions of the 1970s and the 1960s. And for Reagan, there had to be a better way. There had to be a more positive perspective. It was not enough to put up or shut up. It was not enough to accept things as they were. There had to be a better way. He brought a new infusion of idealism that in fact many Americans were looking for after a decade, decade and a half following the Vietnam War, following the disruptions of the 1960s, a decade, decade and a half when people were escaping rather than really seeking major fundamental changes. He believed, he believed that now change could be initiated, but change in ways perhaps that were different from the ways that had been pursued before. He argued as a conservative that in fact many changes had gone too far and that there was time to reverse some of these changes. He also argued that new changes were necessary more in line with American idealism less self-critical, more patriotic, more attached to certain core ideas of Americanism. He appealed, Reagan did, to a post-Vietnam War desire to find a new source of self-confidence. If the Vietnam War shook the confidence of Americans in their power abroad, shook Americans in the sense of their righteousness in the Cold War, if the Vietnam War made Americans question what they were about, as did the civil rights movement, as did many of the disruptions of the 1960s. And if the suburbanization of the 1970s was an escape, Ronald Reagan was looking for a way to reassert what America was about. He was now going to step in and help Americans redefine what it was that made them who they were. And he wanted to do that by going back to traditions, basic values that he felt had been lost. Look at this image of him, the sunny, op the sunny optimism, the sense of looking forward to a bright horizon. He appealed, he appealed to those citizens who had moved to the suburbs. His core group were these very suburbanites we talked about in the last lecture. These were liberals who had been mugged in the cities. These were liberals 
who are upset about all the changes happening around them. These were liberals who did not want their kids sent to schools with kids they did not want their kids going to school with. They moved to suburbs. They still considered themselves moderates. They still considered themselves racially progressive. They still considered themselves believers in basic American ideals, but they were looking for a new kind of figure to protect their way of life at the same time. They wanted to be idealistic and conservative, which is to say they wanted to have protection for their way of life while embracing the best of American ideals. So they were not isolationist, but they were not cold warriors. They were not opposed to civil rights, but they were not civil rights activists either. They were looking for someone to reinstill a sense of values while also protecting their way of life, to mix the old with the new and protect their self-interest in that context. They were in this sense racial moderates. They were in this sense foreign policy moderates. They believed in opportunity but they wanted particular opportunity for themselves. They wanted lower taxes. They wanted more choice in where they send their kids to school. They wanted to make it easier to live in the suburbs and easier for their kids to have the kinds of idyllic lives they wanted for them. They did not deny that to people who were different from themselves. They believed in that for everyone. In this sense, they were traditional Republicans but they also believed that there should be protection for their particular way of doing it. And they believed that race issues had gone too far. Ronald Reagan's, uh, one of his first major campaign addresses, it doesn't show up in this Time magazine cover, but it's the story behind this. One of his first major campaign addresses was a trip he made to Neshoba, Mississippi in 1980. Uh, the site of one of the worst uh, civil rights massacres where four civil rights workers uh, were killed. Uh, during the civil rights movement. He went to Neshoba, Mississippi to a uh, county fair where no politician, no national politician had gone before. And he yelled and articulated to this crowd about the importance of states' rights. He argued for local control. He never defended uh, racial segregation or racial hatred. He himself was personally opposed to those uh, activities but nonetheless embrace the arguments of states' rights. People should get to choose where they live. They should have personal freedom, personal choice, personal freedom and personal choice for all in their suburban lives, in their rural lives, wherever they choose to live. And this was a movement in the mainstream of American thinking. If we saw after the Civil War conflict over the question of who would control new resources, and in the early 20th century, the movement to more progressive sense of reform, with the New Deal, a movement now to more government intervention, this was now an effort under Reagan to empower local communities again, to empower local communities to be free from the intervention and the disruption that was coming from around them, to live the kinds of lives they wanted to live, to be left alone, but now to attach that belief, not simply to escape, but to a sense of a greater self-righteousness, a greater sense of American purpose, a sense of American purpose to be found in living in your own local community, a return in this sense to a sense of states' rights, and a return in this sense to a sense of local control, local control. This was not married to the same race hatred, but it did have many of those same implications, many of the same implications. Okay, so we have three topics we're gonna to talk about today. We're gonna to talk about Reagan and the new right. It's the beginnings of a new Republican party, a new American right. Then we're gonna talk about the new Cold War, the changes in the Cold War. And then we're gonna talk about the end of the Cold War. Uh, we'll talk more about that in uh, lecture next week as well. But we'll at least talk about the early end of the Cold War and um, Ronald Reagan's role in that, as well as Mikhail Gorbachev 
and others uh, as well. So let's start with Reagan and the New Right and his biography, if we can go to the next image. Here we have uh, Ronald Reagan uh, and his first job. Uh, well, really his second job. His first job was as a lifeguard. Uh, his second job uh, as a radio announcer in Des Moines, Iowa. In Des Moines, Iowa. Reagan's career was largely a career in entertainment, not in policy, in entertainment, in um, radio, and then in movies uh, as well. He was born, Ronald Reagan was, in Dixon, Illinois. Dixon, Illinois, which was a rural town in Illinois, basically a farm community where farmers came in to buy supplies, sell their goods, etc. And at a very young age, as I've already mentioned, he became a great fan of Franklin Roosevelt. He began his life as a teenager who was a New Deal Democrat. And this was largely because of the experiences his family had. His father, Jack Reagan, uh, as you could tell from the name, uh, had Irish, was an Irish descendant, a descendant of Irish immigrants. Jack Reagan was a fast-talking, back-slabbing shoe salesman, well-loved, and someone who knew people around the community. And as a shoe salesman in Dixon, Illinois, in the early 20th century, he went door-to-door. He actually sold, went to people's homes to sell uh, shoes uh, to them. I don't think they were wearing Nike high tops at the time, but maybe, maybe they were. We don't know. He was, uh, he was selling shoes. Um, and during the Great Depression, uh, his father lost his job. Uh, quite literally, it's hard for us to imagine today, people stopped buying shoes. And his father lost his job. His father, who was already a heavy drinker, became an even heavier drinker. This is a common story from the New Deal. We talked about this before. Uh, people didn't simply lose their jobs. They lost their sense of purpose. They lost their sense of connection. They lost their sense of control over their lives. And it's particularly difficult for men. It's difficult for anyone. But it was particularly difficult for men at a time when men were the assumed bread earners in their families. 25% of Americans were unemployed in 1933. Uh, and 25% of them, those of that 25%, most were from single wage earning families. So these were the men who had defined who they were by their ability to bring home income to their family. When they couldn't do that, they had lost their masculinity. They had lost their manhood. His father, like many men dealing with this kind of depression, uh, became uh, a deeper drinker, developed a very serious drinking problem, and began having problems with Reagan's mother and family. And Reagan described later in life, he described the horror of one day opening the door to his house and seeing his father face planted uh, in front of the house, not having made it back into the home the night before. Uh, Ronald Reagan believed, as a young man, that his family was saved by Franklin Roosevelt. The New Deal was what saved his family. His father, after being unemployed for about nine months, got a job working for a New Deal agency, uh, working for the Works Progress Administration, basically taking small amounts of money from the federal government to help start projects in Dixon to put people to work. And his father was the perfect person to do this because as the popular shoe salesman in town, he knew everyone. He knew how to find people and put them to work. So the New Deal saved his father. It gave his father a job. It gave his family an income. It gave him a sense of purpose. And growing up as a young man, Ronald Reagan wanted to be someone who brought purpose to others. He wanted to embody that hope uh, and went into uh, entertainment, as I said. He was a radio announcer, and if you go back to this image here, he had moved to Des Moines from Dixon, Illinois, moved to Iowa, uh, and at a local radio station, WHO, 
he was a sportscaster. Um, and they used to send in the scores from baseball games by telegraph. They didn't have uh, video screens. Uh, and he would read the scores. And it was his job to enliven them, to tell the story. He became a great storyteller, telling people, explaining to people what was happening in the Chicago Cubs game uh, or the Yankees game or whatever that he was covering. After doing radio for a while, and notice radio was also Franklin Roosevelt's means of communication, Ronald Reagan moved to Hollywood uh, to become a movie star. He never made it to the top of Hollywood. He never became uh, Lauren Bacall or Clark Gable or Humphrey Bogart, although, although those were all his friends. Uh, he was a sort of B-grade uh, movie star. I don't know who the equivalent would be today. Who, who are the B-grade movie stars today? People we recognize, but they're not, you know, they're not the Brad Pitts. And, like YouTubers, probably. Like YouTubers? Yeah. I reckon they're probably the B-list. You think they're the B-list? I would say they're like yeah. the D-list, but all right. <laughs> They've moved up yeah. recently, yeah. I'm thinking of who are like the, you know, the people who are often supporting actors in, in a lot of, um, lot of movies. Well, well, whoever they are. Uh, those who you recognize in a lot of movies, but usually aren't the stars. He never quite made it to the top. Uh, and then, and this is crucially important, he became involved with the work of actors to protect their pay. He was very concerned, Ronald Reagan was, that actors like himself, especially those who were not at the top, were being exploited by the movie studios. And, and this is the way things worked at that time. It was also this way in sports. You as an actor or you as a baseball player were owned by the studio or the team you played for. So Babe Ruth played his entire career after leaving the Red Sox, after being traded by the Red Sox. He played his entire career for the Yankees because the Yankees owned him. Most of the movie stars of the 1950s all worked for the same studio because the studio owned them. You could not work for anyone else. Reagan got involved with the creation of what you all know now. They put on some of the awards uh, that uh, people, some people watch when, they, when the, you know, the uh, actors get these awards. They go up there and they pretend to cry and thank their grandmothers for making them actors and all this. Uh, this is the Screen Actors Guild, the Screen Actors Guild, which was essentially the first union for actors. The first union for actors. The Screen Actors Guild was designed to provide actors with the ability to bargain to be paid better and not to be owned by their studios. Reagan became the president of the Screen Actors Guild. And he spent as much of his career in Hollywood negotiating as he did uh, acting. And this is really important because he developed a sense of the importance of free enterprise and the importance of unions. Throughout our course, unions have played a very important role. Think of A. Philip Randolph and the Brotherhood of Sleeping Car Porters, right? Think of the importance of the civil rights movement and the unions within the civil rights movement. Unions were crucially important to Hollywood and crucially important to sports, right? It is the Major League Baseball union that allows the creation and, and negotiates with the creation of free agency. So baseball players are not owned by their team. When their contract is up, they can go somewhere else and they can negotiate with another team to be paid more. You all believe in free agency, right? None of you want to graduate and have to sell your entire career to one company. Most of you will work for multiple people and you will often, many of you, because you're talented, you will be at a job at one place, let's say at Google, and Apple will come and offer you more money and you will want to be able to leave to get more money. Right? That is what being a free agent is all about. The negotiation for free agency was done by the Screen Actors Guild and Reagan's role in that. He became well-known 
as a B-grade actor, but someone who was an eloquent and effective spokesperson for freedom and entrepreneurship, protecting those values for actors and others. And he was hired then by General Electric, General Electric, which uh, makes dishwashers and washing machines and stuff like that, to be a spokesman for them. He went around the country advocating for entrepreneurship in companies. Uh, the General Electric of the 1960s was like the Google of today. Uh, we're bringing you the future. Embrace this. Embrace freedom. In 1964, he decided that he was going to support a Republican candidate, not a Democratic candidate. He supported Barry Goldwater for president against Lyndon Johnson. Ronald Reagan's belief was that what Lyndon Johnson was doing uh, in, this ex in the support of the civil rights movement, what Lyndon Johnson was doing in his support of new government programs, were creating too many restrictions on the freedom of individuals like himself. Reagan did not oppose civil rights, but he opposed the federal government getting too involved in people's lives, limiting their ability to live as they wish, where, send their kids to school where they want to send them, work where they want to work. He saw Lyndon Johnson and others as over-regulating the economy, over-regulating society. And he became, in a sense, the first celebrity, the first major celebrity to get elected to office. Uh, Barry Goldwater did not win in 1964, but Ronald Reagan was elected governor of California in 1966. He actually defeated uh, the most recent California governor, uh, at, uh, Jerry Brown. He defeated Jerry Brown's dad, who had been governor before. We have a couple of questions. Yep. One is a comment, actually. I hope you'll like it. Carly wants me to tell you that she likes your shirt. Oh, well, thank you, Carly. <laughs> thank you very much, Carly. I like my shirt, too. What, what do you think? You like my shirt? It, it's nice. You know, it's, it's blue. You and I do a lot of blue on blue. I, I noticed that, yeah. but, but I, I think I've surpassed you today. Uh, you have, yeah. Because sometimes we end up wearing almost the same thing. I know, that's a higher quality this, shirt. This, uh, higher this, quality was... this was actually, this shirt, Carly, it's really, it's wonderful that you mentioned this, because this was actually uh, brought to me by my relatives from India. Wow, wow. So, so I'm, I'm, I'm wearing my Indian internationalism in a very stylish way today, right? I think so. Right, everyone? Not that right. Uh, now, Eddie, what about your shirt, by the way? <laughs> I mean, it's been a while, and no one's commented on the shirt. I, uh, I know. It's very summery. I saw the... Yeah, I think it's nice jungly. It's actually oh, jungly. Yeah. Doesn't it remind you of a jungle? It's kind of a jungle theme. Yeah, at first I thought it was camouflage. I thought, you know, Eddie had joined the Marines or something. <laughs> it's and pretty camouflage with the back. Yeah, yeah, actually, yeah. 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 He's good, good. He's always got a speed on style somehow. He, I don't know. Because <laughs> yeah. it's important to me. Yeah, well, I mean, he's, he's also, you know, he's doing the facial hair. We've got to work yeah, on you with no, that, no, Brooks. No, is, no. It, is it possible? Can you not grow it? No, I, I did that. It was weird. It's like, who's that strange looking guy in the mirror? A weirdo, yeah, but uh, anyway, there wasn't a real question, too. <laughs> that was good, a good comment card. <laughs> I like to vamp a little waste some time. Yeah, 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 thank you. The students appreciate that. You don't want, we don't want to be too serious. No, no. So Nathan would like to know, did Reagan become popular primarily because of his sense of humor? Good question, Nathan. Uh, I would say that Reagan, it wasn't just Reagan's sense of humor. He, he was famous for his ability to tell jokes. Uh, and humor is really important, by the way. Nathan, your question is right on because um, being hum humorous is able to show that you don't take yourself too seriously, right? And if you take yourself too seriously, it's hard to get other people to really connect with you. We connect with people who we feel are open, who we feel a personality with. And Reagan was able to do that. He conveyed a sense of humor. But it wasn't the only source of his popularity. I, I think a lot of his popularity was his authenticity. People believed, even though he was an actor, they believed they were getting the real person. There was a real human side to him. He was humane in his ability to connect with people. One of the things we all have to remember is that being the smartest in the room 
is not always the best way to lead people and connect with people. You should be smart, but you should also be humane. You should be a human being. People connect with others who they feel they can identify with. And so Reagan's humor, his storytelling, all of these things allowed him to do that. And to Nathan's point, he gained a lot of experience talking to a lot of people. One of the things he learned as a radio broadcaster, as a movie actor, as a union leader, as a campaigner, as someone who spoke for General Electric around the country, he learned how to talk to lots of audiences. One thing all of you should learn in your careers is not just to travel widely, but to talk to different kinds of people. If there are people out there who you haven't figured out how to talk to, you need to figure out how to talk to them, because one day they will be important to you. Even if they see the world differently, you have to be able to talk to different kinds of audiences. One of the ways we do that is with humor, right? We break the tension in a room uh, with humor. Another way we do that is by revealing some of ourselves, being vulnerable, telling stories. It is far more effective, this is why history is so valuable, to tell a story, which is what history is, than to tell people what to do. More effective to tell a story than to tell people what to do. During the 1970s, Reagan campaigned on renewing America's story, renewing who we are. He was upset, upset that we had, in his eyes, forgotten who we were. We had gotten so caught up in the crises and controversies about civil rights, about Vietnam, that we had forgotten who we were. And this concept of a new right that I used was a concept at the time of creating a return to what made America great to what America, made America what it was, a return to basic humanitarian values, a return, as Reagan said in the 1970s and then as president in the 1980s, to using our force in more limited ways, but when we use it, using it to win. Reagan was a big fan of the Rambo movies. I know Eddie's a fan of the Rambo movies as well. You, you, have you seen all of them? All of them. All of them. Yep, all of them. Even the Alina, you like the Rambo movies too, right? I just want to make sure. Yeah. Yeah? Sure. sure. Uh, he loved the Rambo movies. He loved the Sylvester Stallone Rambo movies because in the Rambo movies, unlike in Vietnam, uh, the good American finds a way to win. The problem is the government officials who don't understand and the enemies on the ground. But the good, strong, idealistic American finds his way to win. There's a famous moment, and I think it's Rambo 73 or 74, one of the Rambo films, where Rambo is communicating back with home, and he says, can we win this time? Reagan used that line all the time. Yes, we can win this time. His belief was that, and this new right was an argument, that the left had done so much to try to make American society better and control American society that it had lost its sense of American freedom and that this was going to be recaptured. And as he became president and was elected to president largely on that argument as the un-Carter, if Carter was a response to Nixon, uh, Carter providing integrity, Carter providing honesty, uh, Reagan was a response to Carter. Reagan was providing idealism and hope in a way Carter never did. If Carter was seen as dull, Reagan was now going to be hopeful and exciting. And this new right promised to showcase American power at home and abroad. We would win again. And Reagan chose places where he felt this was possible. In particular, if we go to the next image, the country of El Salvador. El Salvador in Central America. If you look at the bottom right-hand corner of this map, you can see El Salvador in Central America. Reagan's argument was that in the decade after Vietnam, uh, 
communist forces were winning and we were losing. They were winning and we were losing. The Soviets were developing more weapons. They were spreading their material. We were leaving Vietnam, but they were going into places like Afghanistan. And they were using their allies in Cuba and elsewhere to spread their influence even close to the United States, into countries like El Salvador that had new Soviet and Cuban-friendly governments. And we as Americans were going to return to our righteous ideals, and we were not going to accept this. We were not going to accept this. So Reagan argued that the United States had to pursue more militant anti-communism in our local region. No more big wars, but the use of force in small wars to protect ourselves. The Reagan doctrine, as it became known, <coughs> was a doctrine that said that we would use force wherever necessary to keep communists out of our backyard, to keep them out of Latin America. Here he quoted Theodore Roosevelt on the United States using its power to show it was a great nation in its own backyard. This had perverse consequences, however. It was very popular among Americans, made Americans feel like they had a purpose in their foreign policy again, a sense of idealism, a reminder of what we stood for. We stood for the defeat of communism. We stood for the spread of democracy. But the perversity of it was that the groups we often supported fighting the communists were not particularly democratic or idealistic themselves. Uh, on the next uh, slide has a cartoon uh, actually somewhat accurately ca characterizing what happened. This is a cartoon from the early 1980s. Um, this is a soldier in the field in El Salvador. He says, President Duarte, President Duarte, Jose Napoleon Duarte. Uh, anyone named Jose Napoleon Duarte you have to worry about. Uh, Jose Napoleon Duarte was a dictator, a thug, a militarist who Reagan supported the United States gave arms to, to fight against communist forces in El Salvador. In this cartoon, the soldier with the beer belly, I was going to make a joke about a TA in that, but I won't. Uh, the soldier with the beer belly uh, is communicating uh, and says, uh, yes, President Duarte, you can tell them in Washington that El Salvador continues to move steadily towards democracy. Does it look like it's moving towards democracy there? What do you think? What do you all see in this cartoon? What's the cartoon telling us? There's a very serious point in this cartoon, relevant to the Reagan years, relevant to later years in American foreign policy. What is the cartoon saying? What's really going on? What is the cartoon poking fun at? Why is it sarcastic, at the least, if not satirical, to say, yes, they are moving steadily towards democracy? Uh, and notice also the little, little, I don't know what they saw, those little dudes on the right, bottom right. We are winning the hearts and minds of the moral majority. The moral majority was a phrase used by a young minister named Jerry Falwell to say that Americans were going to be a majority of people pushing for morality at home and abroad and would not accept anything less. What do we see in the cartoon here? So David says, it looks like nothing is happening. Uh, Chloe says, bunch of people are dead. Um, Corinne says, stagnation, Ian, oppression. Um, Nathan says, looks more like mili militarianism. Um, John says, it seems like they are still very much undemocratic. Right. Um, Miranda says, not really moving towards democracy. The, the, the irony of it, if we go back to the image, those are great comments. If we go back to the image, the irony of it is that they're not moving to democracy at all. We're using the words. And it's not that Reagan didn't believe this. He actually believed it. But it was that the pursuit of democracy was often simply destroying democracy. 
Remember George Kennan's warning from the early Cold War. We have to make sure that when we are defending values, we are not defending them in ways that actually destroys them. What the Reagan administration started to do, what Reagan advocated, advocated out of sincerity, was supporting the people who needed to be supported because they were fighting the guys we hated. But in supporting one group of thugs against another group of thugs, we were not making it better. We were in some ways making it worse. Look at this image. Uh, our friends are ugly, fat, and they're using guns to kill people. They're using guns to kill people. They're not actually building democracy. They are claiming they are building democracy, but they're actually destroying people's lives. It's not to say the other side is better. There's no heroic alternative on the other side here. What makes this cartoon powerful is this cartoon is not oversimplifying. It's telling us how the policymakers are oversimplifying, how the leaders are oversimplifying. It's not that the people they're fighting are good either, but it's that the people we are supporting against the bad guys are potentially as bad as the bad guys. The Duarte regime, the Jose Napoleon Duarte regime, was responsible for creating death squads that would go out and summarily shoot people who were seen as not on the side of the good government. They used American aid not simply to uh, buy food, but in large parts to pocket the money for their own purposes and strengthen their military capabilities without building infrastructure, without building schools, without building a functioning society. This is a recurring pattern, a pattern that became deeply recurring in the Reagan years of the United States supporting forces fighting in name for democracy, but in reality undermining the very values themselves. Those who study Latin America to this day, those who come from Central America to this day, will see the Reagan years as a dark, dark period of American intervention and militarism and a step away from positive change in that region. But it was not that way in other regions and not that way seen by everyone as well. One thing we have to recognize as historians is that the same policies can have different effects in different places. The same policies can have different effects in different places. If we go back to our list of topics, uh, let's talk about Reagan and the new Cold War. If Reagan was pushing American ideals, often militaristically at home and abroad, he was also challenging the Soviet Union directly itself. Reagan's belief was that the United States in the 1970s had fallen behind. And many Americans had come to believe that as well. The Soviet Union was getting stronger, or so it seemed, and the United States was getting weaker. That was the dominant impression, especially because the Soviet Union seemed to be building a bigger military arsenal, and we seemed to be pulling out of places like Vietnam. In 1984, if we can go to the next image after where we were, the uh, Olympics were held in the United States. I remember these days. Uh, it, it actually, it was a, it was a really interesting moment. Um, McDonald's uh, had these little cards they would give out when you went to buy a uh, Big Mac or whatever. And uh, on the cards, they would have different events. And if the Americans won a gold in that event, you got like a free Big Mac. If they won a uh, silver, you got fries. If they won a bronze, you got a drink, right? And I was at the time 11 years old. And uh, believe it or not, I was working in the summer. I had to work to make money in the summer. So I was, I was working. And uh, this was, these um, cards became my source of lunch. That's why since then I have never eaten McDonald's. I had my fill of McDonald's at age 11 in the summer of 1984. I'm sorry, that's why McDonald's is not a sponsor of our course, right? Um, so uh, what happened in 1984 
is deeply relevant to this because, of course, it affected me. And if it affected me, you're stuck hearing about it. Um, it it's deeply relevant because in 1980, after the Soviet Union had invaded Afghanistan, Jimmy Carter, President Carter, had boycotted the Olympics that that year were in Moscow. The United States did not participate in the 1980 Olympics. In retaliation, the Soviet Union did not participate in the 1984 Olympics, which were held in Los Angeles. And the United States cleaned up. It's so easy to win when your real competitors don't show up. And so uh, the United States had this outpouring this outpouring of uh, success in the Olympics. And Reagan translated that very effectively into an outpouring of patriotism. An outpouring of patriotism. That's where this image of him with the, with the flag behind him comes from. Um, he was, of course, not the first nor the last president to use the flag as a symbol. But here's what Reagan was saying in 1984. These guys on the other side, they've been growing stronger, but we are going to reverse that. It's now time for us to flex our muscles again. It's now time for us to show we're stronger and we're gonna kick their butts in sports and we're gonna kick their butts in everything. We're gonna overcome, Reagan said, the Vietnam syndrome, the sense that we were losers. Now we're gonna be winners again and we're gonna take it directly to the enemy. Reagan argued that a remilitarization of the Cold War would strongly forced the Soviets to back down. And he pursued this through his first term as president. In 1983, he famously, speaking to a group of Florida evangelicals, you have the speech on canvas, came out and said the Soviet Union is an evil empire and it is our right and it is our duty to defeat this empire. In 1983 as well, later that month, of March, he announced the creation of a st strategic defense initiative, strategic defense initiative, which was to be a space-based system, the first space-based system, not a land-based or an or a air-based, but a space-based system that would provide protection for the United States and American allies against Soviet missiles, would give us the ability to knock down their missiles, but yet we could send ours at them. He talked about creating a 600-ship navy, uh, today, the United States has a Navy of about 300 ships. At that time, it was about 270. He was going to almost double the size of the U.S. Navy. Create new missiles. And in a country most Americans didn't know much about, called Afghanistan, the United States was going to up its support for those groups fighting the Soviet Union, particularly a group called the Mujahideen, which was a group of Islamic fighters fighting the Soviet Union, which had invaded Afghanistan. We not only gave them money, we started giving them actual uh, shoulder-launched missiles that they could use to shoot down planes, to shoot down Soviet planes. Uh, one of the figures in the Mujahideen, prominent figure, who received extensive American support because he was fighting the Soviets, was again a man most Americans hadn't heard of at the time, but they would come to hear of later, named uh, Osama bin Laden, a Saudi citizen who had gone to Afghanistan to fight the infidel invaders from the Soviet Union. Soon he would be fighting the infidel invaders from the United States. Reagan also emphasized human rights, exactly the topic of our podcast this week. He argued the United States must hold the Soviet Union accountable. Don't pretend they're just a normal state. Tell it like it is. Talk about their human rights violations. In 1982, his first real full year as president, into his first full year, Ronald Reagan refused to even meet with the Soviet ambassador until they released a group of Pentecostals, a group of religious dissidents who were seeking asylum uh, in the U.S. Embassy. 
He called for the release of Jewish citizens, the so-called refuseniks, many of whom were released in the 70s, many more in the 1980s. Many of these refuseniks who were released, Russian Jews released from Russia uh, due to Reagan's pressure, they moved to Israel, and many became prominent figures in Israel. They were a prominent part of Israeli politics. The recent election in Israel was in large part determined by Russian Jews who had left Russia in the 1980s, moved to uh, Israel, and now become important voters and politicians in Israel to this day. That's just to connect that history to what happened just the last few days with the elections um, in Israel. Reagan claimed the United States was about human rights and about power and we were going to push the Soviets. We were gonna mobilize ourselves and our allies. We were gonna be strong again, and we were gonna push back the Soviets. At the same time, because of his experience as a, on the Screen Actors Guild, Reagan emphasized negotiations, and this is really important. He was calling for a tougher line, but he was calling for a tougher line so the United States could negotiate for better deals. This is really, really important. People lost sight of that. Reagan believed that he was going to get, quote, these are his words, peace through strength. But that meant negotiation. The United States, in his view, had acquired a weak negotiating position in the 1970s. We were going to make our negotiating position stronger now. We were going to come to the table stronger, more self-righteous, and we were going to be able to negotiate for a better deal from the Soviet Union. This had enormous implications at home. It was very popular at home but it had other implications at home as well. This carried forward what had been Johnson and then certainly Nixon's agenda of law and order. We talked about this on Tuesday. If the emphasis around suburbs was using police power to control areas, to keep areas safe, to prevent disruption, to prevent protest, that use of police power abroad was also gonna continue at home. If we were gonna have more freedom at home, we needed more strength at home and abroad. Reagan was connecting those comments. And so there was a pullback from civil rights legislation. New money given to policing, in particular, through the 1970s and even more so in the 1980s, you had the prevalence and the continued push for more maximum security prisons and for more mandatory sentencing for drug dealers. This was the height of the drug war, ladies and gentlemen. If we were fighting the communists abroad, we were gonna fight the drug dealers at home. We were gonna be tough, Reagan said, on those drug dealers who hang out at the high school playground or hang out in the park. We were gonna be tough, we were gonna pay more police to capture them, and then we were gonna lock them up and lock them up as long as we could. More money going to law and order at home to say to local communities, you can live as you wish and we will make sure you are protected. Those suburbs have to be safe. They need police and they need to make sure the drug dealers cannot come down the cul-de-sac. And the United States government invested more in that than ever before. And that meant less spending on other things, less spending on welfare programs, less spending on education, less spending on other elements of society, more spending on defense, more spending on policing power. It had a very big effect upon American society. If we can go to the next image. Um, this is the American national debt, which has also grown considerably in the last couple of years. It went down after this period that we're looking at. Reagan is president during the 1980s. Look at how the debt increases. The debt is the accumulated borrowing of the U.S. government. So each year, there's either a deficit or a surplus. We either spend more money than we take in. That's called the deficit. 
or we take in more money than we spend. That's called a surplus. The debt is the accumulated deficits. So if every year you're in college, you spend $5 more than you take in, you have a $5 deficit each year, and after four years, you have a $20 debt. Look at how the US debt explodes. Look at how the US debt explodes during this period. It exploded in the 1980s because Reagan was spending more on defense and policing. He was reducing spending slightly on social programs, but he was also increasing spending on entitlements, Social Security, Medicare. One of the biggest growths in spending at this time is the growth in Medicare coverage, health insurance coverage paid for by the federal government for elderly people. In part, it's because Reagan was an elderly person, but it was also part of law and order and part of security. We were going to be a more secure, orderly society. We would beat the communists abroad, we would imprison the drug dealers at home, and we would make sure that all the old people had safety and health insurance. That was the argument that Reagan was making. It meant that government actually grew larger. It meant that government was actually spending a lot more money, not on the same things that it had been spending money on before, less on education. It is during this period, ladies and gentlemen, that college tuition really starts to rise as there is less money from the federal government and less money from the state governments for tuition, guess who pays for it? All of you. But more money is going into defense and more money is going into policing. So college campuses actually are safer, but students are paying more to go. Parks are safer, but students are paying more to go. It's a reallocation of resources, it's a spending of more money, but a spending of more money on more things for particular groups of people. It means more local control, but more federal spending to secure local control, providing security for local communities to do as they wish. Providing security for local communities to do as they wish. And to some extent, this creates a long-term economic problem for the United States. The benefit is that this system is providing a basis for safety and innovation it's providing a framework where people can work safely. The downside, though, is that it is creating enormous inequalities. Some are benefiting from this spending, especially the elderly. Some are not. During Reagan's presidency, the oldest Americans become the wealthiest Americans in the country. Wealth moves to the old. Old Americans, older Americans, retired Americans who deserve it now also have uh, more health insurance than they've ever had before, whereas young Americans don't. Older Americans live in safer communities, whereas younger Americans might not. And older Americans benefit from a lot of this spending, whereas younger Americans don't. This is not to say any of this is wrong, but those are the facts about what happens. That's where the resources go. Whether you think it's right or wrong is a matter of opinion, but those are actually the facts in the allocation of money. As the money goes to security and law, it's coming away from other investments during this period. Brooks, you look like you had something to say. I don't, actually, yeah. Just, you, you just I'm stretching, you know, kind of moving around. You were talking about old white people, which, you know, that reminds me of my age. I was just talking about old people. Oh, yeah, well, you, don't have, you don't have to be defensive about, yeah. well, about well, this. Well, you know, I mean, it makes me, makes me want to stretch, you know, aging myself, kind of, you know, limber. You do yoga? No, no, I, just, I stretch in here, though. Yeah. Yeah. Twice a week, yeah. Okay. Good, good. Yeah. Good, good. I'm, just take, I want to make sure you take care of yourself. I don't want to have to pay for any health care for you. I want to make sure you take care of yourself. Yeah. Okay. Uh, let's go to our third topic now. Um, we've talked about the rise of uh, Reagan himself and this new idealism, new, new forceful image. And then we've talked about the new Cold War 
and the new emphasis upon defense and policing policy in various areas. Now we can talk about the end of the Cold War. Uh, and we'll talk more about this in the uh, later lectures, particularly we'll talk about what this meant for the international system, what this meant for other countries and America's relationship to those countries. But let's just talk about it uh, from the sort of U.S.-Soviet perspective, from the perspective of American policymakers and their Soviet counterparts today, and for understanding Ronald Reagan and understanding his legacy. People often will talk about Reagan and his role in the end of the Cold War. So let's, let's talk about that a bit today. Our next image, if we could is this man Mikhail Gorbachev. Uh, Gorbachev. I I'm curious, uh, Eddie, do you remember Gorbachev? No, not quite. Not quite? It happened right around the time I was born. Okay. So, uh, yeah, no, no memories so of no it. So no memory. No. Wow. Yeah. Well, that blows my mind. Uh, so Mikhail Gorbachev came to the leadership of the Soviet Union in 1985. Uh, Reagan, as we've just talked about, had been putting pressure on the Soviet Union. He was taking the game to them. He was going to use force to force them to back down. And when criticized for being too militaristic, Reagan, in his humorous way, as Nathan reminded us, said, well, I would love to also talk with the Soviet leaders, but they keep dying on me. In fact, three Soviet leaders in succession died during Reagan's first years as president. They were old men, and they died. Mikhail Gorbachev became the new leader of the Soviet Union in 1985. He was a younger man a man with more international travel experience, a man who had come of age in the 1950s and 60s, not during World War II. And so he had seen the world in a different way. He, Mikhail Gorbachev, was committed to reforming the Soviet Union. Um, he saw that the Soviet Union was having trouble keeping up with the United States. He also recognized that the Soviet Union as an entity had become corrupt, had, was over-investing in the military, and had to build a better functioning economy. He was a communist, but like Reagan, he believed in the idealistic core values of his system, and he believed they had to go back to those values, get rid of a lot of the bad things they had done. He was critical of a lot of Stalin's policies and Khrushchev's policies. He was critical of how the Cold War had forced the Soviet Union to become more militaristic. So he was looking to find a way to open up the Soviet Union and to reform. Ronald Reagan continued to put pressure on Gorbachev, and many of those closest to Reagan did not believe that Gorbachev was very different, at least not for a long time. But to Reagan's credit, when Reagan met Gorbachev, in part because of Reagan's emphasis upon personal negotiations and because of his experience talking to so many audiences, he saw someone different in Gorbachev. My lecture has been largely critical of Reagan so far, and there were many shortcomings Reagan had, but there's no doubt Reagan had one deep, deep insight, which was that individuals matter. And he saw in Gorbachev someone who was different. Gorbachev was the one who wanted to make the changes. Gorbachev was the one who was willing to take more risks, but Reagan was willing to meet him at those risks. And Reagan also believed that all the pressure he was putting on the Soviet Union was designed not just to win, but to reform the Soviet Union. He actually wanted the other country to improve. He actually wanted them to be better. He wanted to help them just as he was trying to bury them. He wanted to help them just as he was trying to bury them. And he came to believe, despite most of his advisors who warned him otherwise, that he could work with Gorbachev that he could work with this man. From 1985 to 1989, till January 89 when Reagan left office, 
he began to spend more and more time thinking and working with Gorbachev, reading about so the Soviet Union. It's extraordinary the amount of time Reagan took, actually, as someone who was not an avid reader, to read about Russia, to try to understand Russian people, and to get beyond simply the conflict, to get beyond simply threatening them. Reagan believed that they could change. He also believed, I think, that he had gone far enough in his threats. He was willing to change course. He was willing, in a certain sense, to be the movie actor who pursues one element and then switches the narrative when people have become sufficiently frightened, sufficiently concerned. He wanted a happy ending, is what one biographer says. As much as Reagan wanted to put pressure on the Soviet Union, he wanted a happy ending. Gorbachev was willing to take serious risks and make serious changes. Gorbachev did most of the work to change the Soviet Union. But Reagan met him halfway. Reagan encouraged him. Reagan supported him. Reagan made Gorbachev believe that he had a partner. Even though they disagreed, they disagreed on the strategic defense initiative, they disagreed on capitalism versus communism, but Gorbachev, as he says in his memoirs, came to believe that Reagan was not actually trying to destroy him, but that Reagan could be a partner. What Gorbachev wanted, he wanted a better relationship with the U.S. so he could spend less money on the military. He wanted help from the U.S. with economic reform. He wanted a more open society. He wanted a society in a world that was less prone to warfare. And he believed, despite Reagan's public rhetoric, that he could actually work with this man based on their discussions. And they both started to take risks. In 1986, they met in Reykjavik, Iceland, Gorbachev and Reagan. And uh, to the absolute horror of their advisors, you can see images of this, their advisors, in absolute horror, they began to talk about actually eliminating all nuclear weapons. Gorbachev didn't want to spend money on these weapons anymore, and Reagan hated them because they could destroy the world. He had built more of them, but he actually wanted to get rid of them. And they were willing to talk about that. They negotiated the first limitations that actually destroyed weapons. All of the agreements of the early 70s, the so-called SALT, Strategic Arms Limitation Talks, they had only put caps on the future building of weapons. Now they were going to diminish weapons. Now they were going to actually start destroying them. The U.S. nuclear arsenal and the Russian nuclear arsenal are reduced during this period. They opened new means for economic cooperation. And they started to see each other as cooperating partners. The way to understand it is these were two rivals right, on the playground who had been punching each other for years, started punching ever harder. And as they started punching harder, they realized, you know what, now we need to restrain ourselves. We've gone far enough. They both believed, Reagan and Gorbachev, that they could work together now to control the conflict and help each other, and help each other. Again, Gorbachev made the harder decisions, took the greater risks, but Reagan encouraged that in ways that were not just policy, but also personal. And uh, this had enormous effects on how societies viewed each other not just on how these two men viewed each other. If we can go to the next image. Uh, this is an extraordinary image here. Um, this is December of 1988. December of 1988. Mikhail Gorbachev, the one in, uh, to the left in front, comes to New York to speak at the United Nations. And uh, he, he uh, gives a speech at the United Nations that uh, those who had been longtime Soviet watchers never thought they would ever witness. He basically says that the Soviet Union no longer wants to be involved in uh, military conflict with the U.S., that the Soviet Union will unilaterally, unilaterally reduce 250,000 soldiers in Europe and 25,000 tanks. 
just unilaterally cut its forces. And he asks the United States to reciprocate, but does not wait for the United States to agree. He then goes to Governor's Island. There he is. Uh, and the Statue of Liberty is in the background in uh, New York Harbor uh, with President Reagan. There's Reagan next to him. And President-elect George H.W. Bush. That's the guy with the really big forehead there. Uh, George H.W. Bush had been vice president and in November 1988 was elected president. So he's president-elect. It's a really interesting moment, right? You have the Soviet leader with the American president and the American vice president, who's now also the president-elect. Um, if you read the minutes of, these media, of this set of meetings, I have read them, uh, and, and you read them coming from Mars, you would not know that Reagan hated the Soviet Union so much. You would not know that Gorbachev hated capitalism. You would not know that these two societies had come close to blowing up the world. You would not know that Reagan had actually called them an evil empire. In fact, when Reagan went to Moscow uh, just before this, he was asked this question, if the Soviet Union was still an evil empire, he said, no, that was another time. Not anymore now. Um, uh, this visit uh, is the moment the Cold War ended. I know, because I was there. I know because I was there. I will tell you my story of, of this. Uh, so um, I, was a, I was in high school then. I was a high school student. Uh, and I used to go to, I was in high school in New York City. I used to take the subway to high school. And um, this was December 1988. And Gorbachev was going through Manhattan, coming from this meeting, going back uptown. So this is in the lower part of Manhattan, the southern part of Manhattan. And they were driving up north. And um, he was in these three, he had these three limousines. They were called Zil limousines, Soviet-style limousines. You might have seen images of them in, uh, in various Tom Clancy films and stuff like that. Um, and I was taking the subway to high school. And I remember coming up out of the su subway, coming home from school on December 3rd, 1988. And you, know, you come out of the subway like a rat. I spent my adolescent years as a rat on the subway. I came out of the subway. Uh, 59th Street and Lexington Avenue, and the streets were lined with people. Uh, you, you couldn't, like, get across the street. There were so many people lining up. And uh, these were not uh, freaks, right? Uh, these were actually people um, wearing suits and ties. These were, like, bankers and lawyers and things like that. And there I am with my backpack, and I'm like, what the hell is going on here? I get out of my way. Get out of my fucking way. Get out of my way. What's going on here, right? Um, and, and I remember thinking, um, you know, I, have the Yankees won the World Series again? It was December. How is this possible, right? What's going on? Um, and then uh, the limousines came by. Uh, Gorbachev, uh, he started to do this as no Soviet leader had before. He stopped the limousines, and he got out and started walking toward the crowd. And I was uh, standing on the street corner, a little pissed off, you know, at all the people around me. And um, there he comes. And first of all, as he started to walk over, um, it, it was as if, you know, Bruce Springsteen was here, right? It was, it, it, it was, it was as if Brooks Winfrey were coming, right? The, the cheering, the, the sense of Gorbachev among Americans, American business people as a hero, was palpable. He was more popular than Ronald Reagan at that moment because he was seen as changing the world. And um, he walked over, right, sort of looked at me, and he said, Jeremy. No, he didn't do that. He didn't do that at all. That's, that's sort of what should have happened, right? He, uh, he came about uh, three or four feet away from me 
and there was just a throng of people trying to touch him and connect with him. That's the moment, ladies and gentlemen, the Cold War ended. Uh, why did it end that moment? Because I said so? No. It ended that moment uh, because what was clear to me, and I recognize this as a 16-year-old then, was that Americans no longer feared the Soviet leader. You cannot imagine Stalin being treated that way. Reagan's hard line in his idealism had curiously collaborated with Gorbachev's reform agenda and Reagan's personal support for Gorbachev's reform agenda. And if we go back to the image we had here, the sense that they could be partners had now infused American society. If the sense that they could not remain partners after World War II had created the foundation for the Cold War, now there was a sense that these two men, the leaders of these two societies, could work together, and there wasn't reason to fear. There wasn't reason. Gorbachev was not a feared person when he came three feet away from me. Gorbachev was a beloved person. He was someone who was seen as a reformer, bringing the world together. And Reagan, even though he was a hardliner, was also seen as a humanitarian, jovial, older man who was willing to work with Gorbachev. Reagan would be remembered for ending the, Cold, ending the Cold War. He did not end it, but he facilitated Gorbachev's efforts. He supported Gorbachev's efforts. He humanized his own policies. He was willing to connect with Gorbachev and willing to encourage Americans to connect with him. If he mobilized, Reagan did Americans for more pressure and more force in the early 80s, he shifted direction, used the legitimacy he had as a hardliner, to sell a soft line to Americans, to sell Americans on working with Gorbachev, to sell Americans on the need to get beyond their own fears. Reagan made Americans feel stronger again, but then he convinced them to use that strength to reach out. It was Reagan's willingness to reach out, his restoration of American confidence, whether justified or not, and his use of that confidence to encourage more cooperation. You see, great leaders, are leaders who use strength and achievement to encourage cooperation and humanitarian activities, not to encourage bullying and continued conflict. And Reagan used the strength that he felt he had built in American society to then encourage cooperation. And that's what I was feeling on the streets of New York that day. The desire and the willingness to cooperate with Gorbachev. That's why the Cold War ended. I felt that as a 16-year-old because I knew enough to believe that that kind of moment was unthinkable even a few years earlier unthinkable even a few years earlier. And it had direct effects. I was not the only one who felt that way. I was not the only one who felt that way. If we go to the next image, it was that exact experience that I had in New York. That exact experience that was the experience of the Berlin Wall falling 11 months later. The Berlin Wall, as you remember, had been built in August of 1961 when the United States and the Soviet Union came close to nuclear war over the future of Berlin. It imprisoned a whole part of West Berlin, and it became the symbol of conflict between East and West, and the symbol of a closed Soviet society and a militarized American society ready to respond. It became the symbol of East versus West, of what um, Winston Churchill had called before it, was built, before it was built, the Iron Curtain, dividing East and West. After Gorbachev's visit to New York, after the developments I described, it wasn't only that Americans stopped fearing Gorbachev. Citizens living in East Germany, in Hungary, in Poland, and elsewhere stopped fearing him as well. And it wasn't that these citizens loved America, and it wasn't that they loved Reagan. 
But they also believed the United States was open to them, that American allies were open to them. And so beginning really in Poland in early 1989 and culminating to some extent in Berlin in November 1989, people living in the Soviet system who had been walled in started to tear down these walls. And this was most dramatic on the 9th of November 1989 when the East German regime opened the wall slightly to allow some people to move and then a throng of citizens came. If you look at this image, these young people, they are not doing this, as I said, because they love America. They're doing this because they want to be free. They want to go where they want to go. And they no longer fear that Gorbachev will shoot them down like dogs, as Stalin did. And they no longer fear that the United States will exploit them. They believe, they believe that now this is a new moment and that the leaders who are working together will allow them to work together with other citizens in places they couldn't work with before. It was, and I can't really emphasize this enough, it was such an idealistic moment. Uh, again, I, I was in high school then. Anything seemed possible. Anything seemed possible. I went off to college uh, in 1990. I went off to Stanford in 1990. And uh, it was, we, we thought every problem in the world was going to be solved. Not because Reagan solved them. Not really because Gorbachev solved them but because Reagan and Gorbachev had found a way to work together and our societies were working together. And if we were working together, anything could be solved. Uh, everything was possible. Anything was possible. The fall of the Berlin Wall was followed by nationalist uprisings throughout the Soviet system in places like Armenia and Azerbaijan and Georgia, in the Baltic states, Lithuania, Latvia, Estonia. And these societies and these groups of people who had long been imprisoned within the Soviet system were able to gain their freedom. And pretty soon, Russians themselves argued for major reform. Russia was one component of a larger Soviet system. And a new man emerged by the name of Boris Yeltsin, Boris Yeltsin, who challenged Gorbachev to actually allow real elections in the Soviet Union, a real democracy. And by December of 1991, the Soviet Union was gone. It was gone. Gorbachev peacefully signed the document ending the Soviet Union as we know it. Again, this was not a victory for the United States. This was an openness to change, encouraged by the United States and courageously sought by those in the former Soviet Union. Reagan did not make this happen. And at some points, he even made it more difficult. But he did play a crucial role. His crucial role was to embrace the possibility of change, to push for it, and then when he saw it, to support it. And it was his willingness to negotiate, his willingness to adjust, and his willingness to convince Americans, using his legitimacy as a tough guy, to now sell a more cooperative policy that made this moment a little more possible than it might have been otherwise. So let's go back to our initial uh, image of Reagan. He did offer Americans a fresh start. Not quite in the ways he always wanted, but in ways that were enduring, in ways that had lasting effects. Attitude matters. Words matter. Uh, what your image is matters for people. Reagan inspired lots of people. He inspired lots of people to believe that the United States could be a better society. He inspired lots of people to believe they could live the kinds of lives they wanted. He inspired lots of people to think they could do better. And he alienated others who were not included in that vision. So it wasn't everyone. 
But for many people, this was an inspiring moment. He gave Americans a new sense of self-confidence. And he actually spent a lot of money on certain things that helped the United States in certain ways. Again, our Medicare system, our Social Security system, in some ways reflect the investments that he made. He actually built government to help certain people, not everyone, and others lost resources. But he did many positive things for many groups. There were negatives too, though. He supported brutal dictators in places like El Salvador. Many progressive reforms, especially civil rights reforms, came to a halt. He supported, he encouraged groups that actually were not groups of hate. He was not a hater, but he supported groups that wanted to limit investments in civil rights. And during the AIDS crisis, when AIDS became a major, not simply a disease within the United States and the world, but also a phobia, people fearful of even touching and talking to others, Reagan did very little. He did very little while thousands of Americans, thousands of gay Americans in particular, suffered from this horrible disease, while tens of thousands of Africans and others in other societies suffered. He did very little about that. And inequality grew during his presidency. Inequality grew. Overall, his policies were, however, revolutionary because they brought the United States out of the shadow of Vietnam, out of the shadow of the disruptions of the 1960s. And they brought suburban politics into the mainstream. Those social changes in the 1970s of people moving from cities to suburban areas, that now came, became the heart of American politics. It became the heart of a new Republican Party. It became the heart of a new system and a new approach to the world and an approach at home. American society was not more divided, nor was American society more prosperous as a whole. But American society seemed to be moving in what many believed was a positive direction. And those who were left behind, those who were left behind were now mobilized to push for their own purposes in other ways. He replaced, Reagan did, the Vietnam War with what he saw as more winnable wars. He replaced the global disruptions of the 1960s with law and order. And he brought a suburban heartland into the mainstream of American society. He created two Americas, not divided, but still two Americas. There were the Americans and the parts of America that found hope and idealism in what he was doing. And there were those who continued to feel left behind. Those two Americas would work together in his time, but they would in some ways be the two Americas that we would come to see in later years. Reagan's politics were politics of hope for many. They left others in despair. They were politics of change at home and abroad and politics of idealism, but not for everyone. What Reagan teaches us most of all is that in a large, complex society like the United States, there are different experiences people have from the same policies. We must be attentive to those ex different experiences. To Reagan's credit, he pursued change. To Reagan's discredit, he didn't understand how it affected different groups in different ways. That's a tall order. Change in a complex society will always affect people in different ways. Leadership is about understanding and reconciling those changes. That topic will be the topic for us as we move forward into the post-Cold War period and we look at the consequences of the end of the Cold War for the creation of the world we live in today. I will see you all on Tuesday to discuss that wonderful, fascinating topic. Have a good weekend. Until then, don't forget your response papers. See you soon. Thanks for listening. Please rate, review, and subscribe to this podcast wherever you get your podcasts. We would love to hear from you. You can email us at podcasts at c-span.org.